Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's episode is a panel discussion on homelessness in Anchorage. Panelists include representatives from the Anchorage Coalition on Ending Homelessness, the Rasmussen Foundation, and Mayor Bronson's administration. The event was hosted by Representative Ivy Sponholz and was moderated by Alaska Public Media's Lori Townsend. It was recorded at the Wilda Marson Theater in the Lusak Library on Wednesday, August 11th. This program was edited for length. A quick note, due to a technical issue, sample audio clips were missed during the live event, but are included in this broadcast. Moderator Lori Townsend speaks next. So let's get started. Our panelists tonight are Michelle Brown. Michelle is the Rasmussen Foundation Senior Fellow focused on homelessness. Michelle was the president of United Way of Anchorage for 17 years. She retired from that position in 2020. During her years of service at United Way, vital programs such as the statewide 211 helpline were put in place as well as a cold weather shelter system to serve families. And during Michelle's tenure, United Way enrolled more Alaskans in health insurance under the Affordable Care Act and increased permanent supportive housing with the Home for Good pilot program to serve chronically homeless individuals. Thank you for being here, Michelle. Sharon Shamar is a professor of justice with the UAA Justice Center. Focusing on homelessness for many years, Professor Shamar published Problem-Oriented Guides for Police on Homeless Encampments for the U.S. Justice Department. She has served as a consultant with the Community Action Policing Team of the Anchorage Police Department since 2007. CAP, that program, provides training to officers on problem-oriented policing and advises on responses to homelessness, including homeless camp abatement. Professor Shamar is also involved with numerous other Anchorage organizations working to end homelessness. We'll learn more this evening. Thank you for being here, Sharon. Meg Zalatel is an Anchorage Assembly member representing Midtown. After law school, Meg came to Alaska to take a job with the Disability Law Center of Alaska in Anchorage. This job gave her valuable experience working on systemic issues related to ensuring Alaskans with disabilities have the necessary support and services to live, work, and be independent members of the community. Meg still practices law, but says she spends the majority of her time working as a member of the Anchorage Assembly, where she applies her experience on issues related to social infrastructure, such as homelessness and mental health. Hello and welcome, Meg. And Terrence Shanigan is also with us. Terrence is the Director of Legislative Affairs for Mayor Dave Bronson, and we're really grateful that he is kind of pinch-hitting tonight for for uh, Mr. Morris, who couldn't be with us. Terrence is a U.S. Navy veteran, former Alaska State Trooper. He's an explorer and most recently worked in the legislature as the Chief of Staff for State Senator Mike Schauer prior to joining Mayor Bronson's administration as the Director of Legislative Affairs. Terrence is Alaska Native. He's Aleut and was born in Kodiak. He is the founder of Operation PAUSE, which stands for People Are Worth Saving and that utilized retired and off-duty Alaska Native law enforcement officers to work on suicide and sexual assault prevention and addressing root causes to homelessness among the Alaska Native population in Alaska. Thank you for being here this evening, Terrence. And Jasmine Boyle has spent two decades leading strategic planning and organizational change in the public and private sector. She's focused much of her career on health and human services, 
Jasmine developed a passion for social justice while supporting inner city urban communities, focusing on child welfare, specifically on youth exiting gangs and human trafficking. In 2018, she joined the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness here in her home community. Jasmine also serves on the board of the Alaska Coalition on Housing and Homelessness and the National Coalition to End Urban Indigenous Homelessness. So thank you so much to all of you for your commitment to ending homelessness in our community and state. Uh, I'd, I'd really like each of the panelists just to start off here. Um, we're not gonna have time to have every panelist answer every question because I want us to get through not only a few questions here and hear from some folks with lived experience, but also I certainly want to get to the questions that have come in before this evening by email and will uh, be coming in from your additions. We have some here now. So Michelle, would you start us off here? You've focused on ending homelessness for many years. How would you prioritize the steps for moving forward? Oh, thanks. I'll just go first, and I'll tell you all how to solve this problem. <laughs> um, I want to emphasize the word all in that sentence because the, the thing I would like to drive home, and it may be um, you know, a little nerdy, but um, it picks up on what Jasmine said is the continuum of services, and that's that um, for every person who is experiencing homelessness, there is a unique story and a unique path out. And there is also no single solution. There is no magic bullet. I know everybody wants to find their one thing that if we could just do that, it would solve the problems for everyone. Um, and it just doesn't exist. And, you know, when there have been wonderful services provided and wonderful caring for decades, and there has been prog progress and there have been great results for individuals, but at the whole population level, we were not seeing the level of success that we would like, meaning people becoming self-sufficient at whatever type of housing works for them and stably living their lives. And what we've seen in other communities is the key to change is what Jasmine called the continuum, is you have to have the right array of services that will meet the needs of many diverse people from outreach to services navigators all the way to housing and providing supports even after people are housed if that's what they need and that all parts of these must function together and we have to be driven by a desire for common outcomes, common measurement of data, and constantly looking at what's worked for who and how do we replicate that and what is not working, so how do we adapt? It's, it's that constant interaction with people who are experiencing homelessness and those who serve them and community members of what we need to do together. And the communities across the country that have succeeded are the ones who have cracked that ability to collaborate well and adapt and use data to drive action. The communities that do not do well are people who light on magic solutions and invest a lot of time and money in them and hope that they'll save the day. They may be important components of a whole system, but they cannot stand alone. So while it's not a sexy answer, it's the hard work of collaboration and constantly looking at your data and best practices and readjusting as you go to make sure that we're all focused on having a clean and healthy community and that people have sta stability and self-sufficiency in their lives. All right, thank you so much, Michelle. Sharon, will you pick it up there? Your ideas for prioritizing this work. 
Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's actually quite hard to follow Michelle. She's very uh, thorough in her answer. Because my, my area of expertise really in, in all of this is, is homeless encampments. And, um, you know, how do we deal with homeless encampments? And there is, you know, some good, um, good examples. And I've, I did a study on a community in, in California that had a very established homeless encampment. And um, they were able to um, disable or, or, you know, dismantle the encampment, but they didn't do it by just coming in one day and, you know, and just gathering everyone's stuff up and, you know, arresting people. And that, that's often the approach. In some communities, they're called bum sweeps. Um, you often see this in urban areas where they'll go through and just, you know, take everything up, you know, uh, destroy people's personal property and so on. And that's pretty ineffective. Um, and that's, that's kind of the approach that, in many respects, Anchorage has taken for, for a long time. Um, although, you know, I know APD has been very nuanced in their approach, and so I don't want to, to frame it uh, that, that harshly. But unless you are able to provide housing of some sort for the people in the encampments, all you're really doing is displacing them. Um, it's, 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 it's a sort of, often when we deal with, with crime and disorder, one approach is to, to go in and, and deal with the issue. And that can work for some sorts of things. Like, you can discourage people from committing burglary or shoplifting or, or through various situational measures. But you can't really discourage someone by being homeless by destroying all their stuff. They don't all of a sudden say, well, wow, gee, now all my stuff has been destroyed and I've been arrested. Now I'm going to go out and get a home. Um, in fact, this sort of approach is an impediment for people. Um, so what works in communities that are able to deal with encampments is that they, um, over the course of, of, could be weeks or even months, make contact with each of the individuals in the encampments. And Michelle was talking about the importance of collaboration across all the different entities in the community. Because um, each person has got a, their own story, she said, and they, they need a specially crafted solution for them. You know, I think, I think Anchorage has the, the infrastructure and it certainly has the know-how to, to move in this direction. And so I really hope that we will, we will be able to, to do that. All right, thank you. Meg, as an assembly member, give us a, be, a brief description, if you will, of some of the past efforts and how they did or did not work. And do you see consensus among members for how to best move forward as we approach fall and winter? Yeah, thank you. Um, so picking up off of what Sharon said about um, camp abatement to start, when I came on the assembly in April of 2019, that was the majority of the funding. It was about $300,000 the municipality had committed towards addressing homelessness. We are now millions of dollars in commitments. Um, we have made many strategic investments from standing up a mobile crisis team to um, on the prevention side to um, appropriately respond to mental health crises to investing in rental assistance, significant investments during um, COVID in rental assistance, almost $30 million, funding landlord liaison programs, um, utilizing the alcohol tax funds to um, invest in permanent supportive housing through Home for Good, which Jasmine mentioned, as well as the outreach. So I think you know the reflection of kind of where we started, at least with my term, to where we're at now is we have operationalized many of our investments into our operating budgets and also recognize the need to catalyze a lot of efforts um, in response to COVID. Um, moving toward the winter and fall, I think there's general agreement that we um, 
need to provide shelter. Um, we've always invested in winter sheltering. Um, it's always unfortunately been a little bit of a scramble, but I think we know we have to do something. And in fact, our code requires um, when we hit the 10 degree mark, we've got to have something for everybody who wants and needs it. Um, you know, what that will look like, I think, is set to unfold in the coming weeks and months um, as we continue to have a dialogue about that. Um, and I think we've really been thrown a little bit of a wrench with the Delta variant and the uptick in COVID cases, frankly. But I think you have an invested assembly um, who is working very diligently on the issue um, and really wants to continue to be out there leading policy-wise on um, how to not only address public health and safety, but to have a broader role and to really look at prevention and outreach and, and be a part of the team um, and the collaboration. All right, thank you. And Terrence, uh, you worked in the legislature for Senator Schauer, and before that you were a state trooper, and now you work with Mayor Bronson's administration. Talk about what you've heard so far this evening and how that does or possibly does not align with what the mayor wants to do. Um, well, first I'd like to say that this topic transcends politics, and I'm grateful that the panel has assembled and that we have a cross-section of ideas and that we have legislators that are invested and we have an assembly that's been working on this issue for a very long time. And um, there are a lot of good ideas and um, we need all the stakeholders at the table to make this work. Uh, the problem has evolved over time. I got involved with working with the homeless back in 1998 and yet we're still here talking and uh, it's because it evolves and we're trying to keep up with the changes. Uh, the United Way has done a great job over the years trying to help uh, all of the providers that are bringing services, whether they're church organizations that are looking for guidance and leadership or they're nonprofits that have come together, and trying to help coordinate and focus that. And um, I started looking at uh, data that was coming from uh, through South Central Foundation uh, in 2004 to see what it was as a citizen I could learn and do. Um, I guess some of the, so my perspective is a little different because I come from the law enforcement side where I've seen it, but I'm also, um, uh, I experienced a lack of housing myself here in, um, in Anchorage and uh, was an unfortunate situation where I had come back from college and uh, um, there just wasn't any place for me to land and this was home. This is uh, <clears throat> early 2000s and I found myself living in a tent uh, in Centennial Park over in, in Muldoon. And, uh, you know, for me it was, I didn't have uh, some of the limitations that others have. I wasn't um, struggling with a substance addiction. Um, I did have a support network, but I was in that situation. And uh, so I understand when people that uh, just find themselves without housing. But in that experience, I also interacted with folks that were the other part of the lack of housing, which is the more visible problem that we see on the streets. and. Uh, and those are the ones that tend, we tend to quickly um, associate or tag with being the, the nuisance or the problem side of it. But they too also have had factors that have led them to where they're at. And that started my interest. And in 2004, when I joined the Alaska State Troopers, uh, immediately started to connect and work with the other troopers at the time that were Alaska Native. And all of us came from different regions and had different life stories. And um, by 2007, had come together with this Operation Pause. Well, what that did for me was looking at uh, what were the root causes. And um, I, 
I started to see that there were a lot of well-intentioned efforts. Um, and even as we work on things like a navigation center or looking at how to expand housing or where the nonprofits are bringing, trying to get people off the streets or feed somebody, um, we're still, uh, I still see that as a triage. We're still addressing some of the symptoms and there's a ton of work and people are doing it where we're, we have to go upstream uh, a long way to figure out what some of those factors were to cause them to be on the streets the first time. And uh, most people um, don't know that I spent between 2012 and 2016 almost uh, three to four nights a week on the streets of Anchorage meeting and interacting with the homeless. Um, AIH was a big sponsor back then, uh, giving me socks and hats and gloves uh, at a reduced cost so that I could hand those out. And uh, I started to talk to people and ask questions. Um, but I did find families that were sleeping in cars across from the bus depot in downtown by City Hall uh, with six people in a vehicle with pets and, um, and uh, just happened to have the confidence enough to go up and talk to them and ask them the situation. And I knew that if it was difficult for me to want to contact them, imagine what somebody who didn't have a law enforcement background and didn't have that regular um, training to contact people and start those cold conversations, how difficult it would be. So I know what we're facing, it's an uphill battle. The administration um, isn't singularly focused on one concept or idea. and. Uh, I think that as the conversation continues to go forward, uh, internally we talk about how we need to have all of the ideas and people at the table because the conversation is going to evolve differently as you bring in perspectives other than your own. So um, I guess I can just leave it with that and that I'm coming at it from a little different angle and um, I saw so I'm seeing things and providing my input as to what I see um, with this issue and uh, hopefully through the connections and the networks that we're making, we can add this to uh, just one of the tools that we have. All right, thank you. Jasmine, in the years, you, you talked a little bit about this when you were giving the presentation that started us off, but in the years that you've been working on uh, ending homelessness, how has the need changed, not only in the numbers of people who need help, but in the type of services that are needed? I, I think that prior to COVID, we were getting a handle on things. Um, we saw a significant investment in youth services. We're the only state in the country that has statewide youth homelessness demonstration project jargon from the feds. Uh, we have a youth system that is working vibrantly in our community and certainly being stood up in other parts of the, the state outside of Anchorage. Um, we've seen significant investment in family services. Um, what continues to be a struggle is our single adults. And in the world of homelessness, when we say single adult, we simply mean people over the age of 25 who do not have children in their physical custody. It doesn't imply that they're single people, it just means that in that moment they're not the caretaker of a child. Um, when we look at that, it is uh, remaining an underfunded item in our community and continues to be the number one public concern I hear about. Um, I think that what we've seen change in the time of COVID is again, folks that are entering into homelessness and staying in homelessness that don't necessarily have complex needs 
yet. Uh, what we also know from around the world and certainly evidence-based work is the longer you stay in homelessness, the more complex your challenges are going to be. Um, it, there's certainly an interplay with things like substance misuse and, and mental health challenges. Um, but the, the population themselves of people experiencing homelessness remains dynamic as it ever has. I, I think what really has in many ways set us back a bit is, is COVID and certainly the economic fallout that we have all experienced in Alaska. But the people themselves, they, they continue to present with the same challenges that I think we're all aware of. We have uh, an under-resourced behavioral health system in Alaska. We have chronic challenges with child abuse um, and with human trafficking. These things feed into homelessness. Um, the wait time to get into API or to get behavioral health services for people dealing with depression, anxiety, substance misuse, um, continues to grow. And, and now many people that never expected to have those challenges aren't doing well with their mental health because of COVID. I can certainly say that my anxiety looks a lot different than it did two years ago. Uh, I, you know, and I'm, I'm the beneficiary of a, a safe home. Um, so I can mitigate that a little bit differently, but the needs of people don't really change. You know, they've been around since pre-biblical times. Homelessness is not a new problem. We just have a new way to talk about it and a new way to count, count the data around it. All right, I am going to reduce some of my questions because we have so many from the audience, which is good. This is a, an interested um, group of folks. So I, I want to ask a little bit about um, some of what you touched on earlier, programs that are really hitting the mark and meeting the need for people in other places, other states. Um, and so I think I'd like to have Michelle and Sharon and then uh, if other panelists want to also weigh in on ideas, that would be great. But what have you seen in your travels and in your studies uh, about things that really do work in other states, other countries? What's, what are some of these solutions that we could possibly use here? You know, I, something that no one has mentioned here yet, but I think because it's sort of become the norm in this community, it's just the, the idea of housing first. Um, you know, years ago, I was the president of the Fairview Community Council when Rural Cap proposed to, uh, to create a facility um, a housing first facility and uh, remember at the time the, the community council opposed it um, primarily based on location and I used my my skills as a researcher um, to sort of do a literature review and what, what did we know about housing first and I, I think my takeaway from that is that it, it's, it's really effective however at that time there was very little understanding about the impacts on the surrounding community um, and I think, uh, you know, now we've had facilities, and I, and I could speak, you know, as a resident of that neighborhood that uh, um, I'm not convinced that was the best use of that property. However, all of the negative outcomes that people expected, I think, have not come to fruition. Uh, so, uh, and I think it's largely because of the, the, the management of the facility. And it's not to say it's been perfect. And I see there's individuals in the audience giving me a thumbs down now who disagree, but, that's fine. That's just based on my, my observations. Um, so yeah, housing first, I think, is definitely um, the way to go. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the model, it's, it's a very simple approach. It's that, um, it, you know, it used to be we'd say housing is for people who, uh, you take, say, a, a someone who's a chronic inebriate and homeless for many years. Well, they have to go into treatment first. They need to become sober, and then they can get housing. But housing First realizes that it's very difficult to become sober 
or to improve your lot in life if, you're, if you don't have a safe place to live, a safe and stable place. And so Housing First is like, let's get people into housing right away and then work on their other problems. Uh, and so I, I'm pleased to see that, that Anchorage is doing that. Uh, I, I hope that we embrace more and more of a scattered site approach rather than having, uh, one of my concerns is that uh, as with what happened with, um, with the Carlick Manor facility, that was, a, that was a motel that was sort of nearing the end of its viable commercial life. There are many of these around the city. They tend to be concentrated in certain neighborhoods. I'm really concerned that that, that will be the approach to just buy these motels and turn them into um, you know, large, large facilities because that has impacts on the surrounding neighborhood. Um, and so I, I really think we should look for smaller types of scattered sites approaches. Like they use, I believe it, in Minnesota, it tends to work quite well there. All right, um, Michelle and then Terrence, I know you had, you'd like to make a comment as well. Um, I totally agree with you, Housing First, um, and the, the evidence from other cities is um, absolutely clear that Housing First, you know, I mean, imagine yourself, if you're, you know, in a big shelter trying to get your act together, you know, after a lifetime of trauma to earn your housing, um, it's very clear that when you have a stable place and then somebody who works with you on solving your life challenges, um, people do recover faster. So rather than, an, I just want to cite one example of what's happened in this community, just because I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting model and it's called Home for Good. And it is for people who have um, lengthy um, stays in homelessness, uh, serious mental health or substance abuse problems, a life of trauma, um, illness, you know, are most vulnerable and are most seriously ill. And these are the people that Jasmine alluded to often cycle through the court system, the emergency room. They're very expensive for the community. And taking a housing first approach with these you know, individuals takes a while sometimes to work with them to get them to feel safe enough to come into a house enter their own home, uh, their own place, and they have an intensive case manager who works with them, helps them get just life skills, how to feed yourself, how to do all these things. And um, the, the people that have been served through Home for Good, which is United Way runs it with a number of partners, um, are experiencing an 80% retention rate in their housing. They are, you know, and these are people who have cycled in and out for decades. They are now staying stably housed for the most part, and the community costs are dropping dramatically. Yes, it's not inexpensive to provide that supportive housing, but we're seeing you know, police calls, emergency room use going down 80, 90%. And that is you know, getting people a supportive relationship and into the right type of housing turns lives around for the individual and for the community. Thank you, Michelle. Terrence? Uh, yeah, just a couple of points. Um, the, when I, when I, I agree with what Housing First does, although if we today built a structure and took everyone that we know is, is off the streets, the visible ones and those that aren't, um, we still have the systemic problems that are feeding us that issue. And what I was finding and my time asking questions and looking into it is that if we built something today, and let's say we took the BP building and just made it into a giant complex for people that didn't have housing, and we took everyone off the streets and stuck it in there, we still didn't do anything to prevent the problem. 
we're still allowing it to happen. You're going to have six, eight, nine thousand more people sooner than you know it filling those up. And so it's a spectrum. And um, that spectrum is um, if we put all of our resources into a housing or shelter situation, um, then we aren't really getting to the root causes. And so for me, we do need, and I know that services are working on root causes, but we have to go way upstream because there's a time when a child is 10 years old. And a, you know, as, a, as an investigator, when I interview children that have had a traumatic experience as a child, and then when I talk to adults on the streets that are 55 years old and they tell me the first time happened when I was assaulted or I was sexually assaulted, when you hear that, I'm not the expert to sort of dive into the psychology of it, but I have to think in the back of my mind, could that have been a trigger that's led us to this person at 55? That's the root cause. There's a responsibility of, uh, I think, those of us that are in positions where we're part of government, where we do need to go upstream. And maybe, and I've suggested it to prior mayors and other administrations on both sides of the aisle saying, you need to go out to, to Bethel because the data is showing us that 25% of our people are coming from that region or, uh, or we have 8% coming from southeast. What do we know about them and what were the causal factors in that person? And so when, uh, I forget who was made the comment that every person has an individual story. They do. And each one of those stories, if we can understand it, maybe we can create a prevention measure and, uh, and doing that. The other thing is I have relatives that are on the streets right now in Anchorage and in Juneau. And uh, I've been helping and working with them for a long time. And we put them in housing situations and they end back up out onto the streets. Uh, and when, you, when I see that situation and we're creating that, I don't know the exact answer to, to work on that individual and when that situation is there. But I do understand that the, the situation is so complex that even after trying 20 and 30 times in two decades of trying to keep somebody from finding themselves in the streets, with all of the support networks we have, they're still out there. Um, but with an education, uh, being a former educator as well, and some people may remember here uh, in the Anchorage School District over, you know, maybe in the last 15 years, there was a curriculum that went around and we tried to create these webs for children so they wouldn't fall through the cracks. And I see the efforts that are happening here right now. The city is really becoming active in creating these webs so that we don't lose citizens through the cracks. And I think that we really have to look at how we approach that with the children and figure out how to approach that with the homeless, since it's a broad, it's a very broad topic along a, a spectrum that there are these root cause things that take a lot more research and resources. And uh, I think it's almost more than we have that we can leverage here by ourselves. And we need to figure out how to bring in uh, and refocus ourselves to get to some of those root causes because just providing the housing uh, in itself may not be uh, the solution we're looking for. It solves the problem today, but we still have what's feeding that problem. I know, Jasmine, you wanted to weigh in, and then um, Meg, did you want to quickly comment as well? And then uh, I'd like to move on to another question. We have so many questions from the audience. I'd, I'd like I'll to get to those quick. quickly. Thank you. I, I suspect that we might be saying much of the same thing. I just want to uh, say um, what you're calling a spectrum, I call a continuum. But I think it's that same idea that we need to meet people. I cannot agree with you more on root causes. I, I just want to say for the sake of folks that haven't spent this much time, housing today saves lives today. Housing today very deeply matters to the people who are outside in the rain. And so we, we do have to have that dual approach because there are people who pass away in our community in the winter months because we do not have housing for them. That to me is unacceptable. And 
there are people in our community whose level of frustration about homelessness in their backyard, in their business areas, um, in their community ha has reached a, f a point of fury that is not healthy for any of us. And so, again, I suspect we're both saying that, but just wanted to call out very clearly that there has to be a dual approach. We need to deal with the immediate while we're also dealing with those root causes because, uh, again, I. I enjoy a bit of history as an amateur, and homelessness has been documented since the, the dawn of written history. This is not a new problem. However, it's a problem that rapidly is becoming more complicated, and we do need to go right back to the roots, but just wanted to add that really quick. Meg. Um, yes, briefly. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, um, as policymakers, the Assembly has identified the need for those upstream investments in the alcohol tax that was recently passed. A significant portion of that was put toward early education, um, domestic violence, child abuse, and sexual assault prevention. Um, as we've seen over the course of years, um, state funding has been cut um, in a lot of these areas, and we've seen the um, fallout of that here in the uh, municipality, and it's a cost. It's a cost in the municipality, and so that dual approach um, and having that revenue source through the alcohol tax, I think, you know, we may not see an immediate return on investment, but it's the long-term return on investment where we can start at the beginning while making some of those other strategic investments, I think, um, will be um, paramount to really trying to tackle the root of the problem. Let's uh, talk a little bit about one of the issues that we heard from folks who are experiencing homelessness that is uh, one of the big problems for them in the immediate sense, and that's the camp abatement process. Uh, we're going to hear now a clip from one of the interviews in Mountain View that our reporters, Alaska Public Media reporters Lex Trinan and videographer Jeff Chen recorded just a few days ago. Every single time that we get abated, there's more and more people that have to, because of a lack of place to put it or because of the lack of assistance or the moving back and forth, they lose more and more. And I've seen people give up on everything. Um, if you ask me, I think we should just keep it where it is. I mean, what does this place really mean to the government or to the state? They dump snow here. Uh, this was in um, the Mountain View camp. And there are notices now along the Chester Creek Trail that describe areas of city parkland that are off limits to the public. The notices say that personal property in these areas are subject to immediate seizure. So. Terrence, can you talk just a, a minute about um, the administration's plans going forward for handling camp abatement? I understand there is a deadline on Sunday for some camps. Uh, reporters are going to be going back out as people are packing things up to see what they're thinking and where they plan to go. Um, I don't really have enough of that information from the administration um, since I have not been a part of those conversations. And um, But previously when this topic came up, um, um, Internally, it's really something that they've been talking with uh, APD. And so from my perspective, if there's something specific that I can provide maybe after this, um, sure. we can get we can circulate that out. But I just don't have enough information because I haven't personally been a part of that conversation. Um, but on the abatement topic um, in general, um, I uh, had, when I was um, over the last couple of years, spent about a third of my time uh, outside and lived south of Portland. So I've watched Oregon uh, explode with the same issues that Anchorage has. 
and uh, have farm property there about 45 minutes south of Portland and had people move into that area. Uh, and at first it was, we'll leave them there. It's kind of a area where it's a DOT issue, it's a railroad issue, it's private property owners. Pretty soon law enforcement wouldn't address it. Now people are now coming up to the residence and to the house and, and it has become a problem and law enforcement won't act because government officials have said, uh, you can't move these people um, if uh, um, right now, and it, it's a COVID thing. So as a private citizen that's also being impacted by this uh, and has for a while, it's challenging when you see what's happening. Does the rest of the public um, in these situations where we have these, where we have visible situations, we're talking about camps, and I feel for them because there's this need when you listen to these audio clips, you can hear it and, and they make sense. They're, they're making sense. They don't have resources. Um, and so just shifting things around, where, where can they go, but also making sure that we're not putting that pressure on private citizens, right, in, the, in their backyards, as well as where public uses areas. You know, public use areas, there are some places in town here where I cannot take my children, that I used to take my children. And it puts law enforcement in a very difficult spot because we're asking them to do things. Um, and so having been on that law enforcement side, having had to go into camps uh, and, and um, be sort of that push. Um, I am feeling it, and when, but when you hear the human side of this, the, the compassion piece is there. And so I know that the administration and the assembly are kind of working through that right now, um, and maybe more answers will kind of reveal themselves as that as time plays on there. Yeah, and, and thanks again. Um, I want to remind folks that Terrence stepped in at the last minute, and so we're grateful that he's here representing the administration. And, and as he said, more information can come forward from the Bronson administration as as um, questions get asked. And Meg, from the assembly's perspective, how, what is that discussion like and how are you grappling with this idea of abatement? Keeping, keeping things clean and safe for uh, all residents of the city and um, both those that have housing and those that do not. Yeah, it's, um, it, it creates a natural tension and we do have um, a responsibility to public health and safety um, and that's at the forefront. Um, not just the public health and safety of those who are housed, but those who are unhoused as well. Um, and so coordinating um, better outreach to noticed camps, ensuring that there is shelter available if a camp is going to be abated. And then I think there was a lot of frustration in the past around camp abatement where we kind of played whack-a-mole. A camp would just move and move and move. And we kind of had these hot spots, particular areas of the green belt. And so to ensure you know, and disincentivize camping along those areas, those areas were completely closed down. And that's where you may see those notices that they are closed. Um, and partly that was in response to those summers where we had really high fire danger. So again, we're trying to balance the public health and safety while recognizing the need to provide outreach, referral, resources. I think one of the missing pieces, frankly, is transportation. If we have outreach on the ground or we have a notice going out to a camper and they're like, I'm ready to go to shelter, we should be like, great, here's a car, let's go. Um, and I think we have a bit of a disconnect there. I've heard that as some feedback. So I think we continue to refine the process. Um, we also do things now that are a bit more preventative um, around abatement. We just do a lot of leftover trash cleanup, which is another way to just stay on top of public health and safety. A lot of times when people think they see a camp, it's not always an active camp. It was a camp 
that was abated but not fully cleaned. So I think we're being more holistic in the approach, but I think it's always a delicate balance between ensuring that everyone's public health and, or everyone's health and safety is um, looked after. And one more question about camps themselves. We did uh, hear from a gentleman who talked about the concept of a more permanent camp area with facilities and services close by. That's been suggested by some advocates. It's been suggested by some of the folks that were in this Mountain View uh, camp that were interviewed the other day. I would like for us to have a land where, where people that don't want to stay inside, who have been staying outside a long time, who have got acclimated to being outside and being in the nature, could have their own piece of land, be it homestead or what, but not far off where we can't see our friends, but close enough where we can commute, either walking or by bicycle, to come in, see our, few, our friends, talk with our community, make some meetings, and get some solutions going. Is there, Terrence, to your knowledge, and, and again, I realize that you're just getting up to speed with the Bronson administration folks, but is there consideration of, of such an idea, a sanctioned campground that would be secure, provide water, bathroom facilities, as well as medical and other services? And, and as Meg said, you know, um, I think it was Meg that mentioned something about transportation and the need for that as well so that people can get back and forth. I'm taking lots of notes of what people are saying too because I think these are all ideas that we want to continue to have. Um, as far as brainstorming, those ideas all have come out through brainstorming um, to create that. I think as people look at the, the, the administration's uh, proposal to create the navigation center, it is sort of taking a step uh, away from just a shelter concept and trying to create an environment um, the, the finished result may look different than what's been proposed, and um, I think that's going to be work that's hammered out between uh, the stakeholders, the, the, the community members, the assembly, the mayor. Um, but creating a navigation center or centers and pathways for, for people to come as a resource and not uh, build something that's uh, just built on the idea of a shelter. A uh, center is going to have to have some sheltering capacity, um, no doubt. But um, being able to come to a place where it is also a resource um, for those that are going to be served is really important. And there are going to be people that come in off the streets that come themselves. There'll be some that are referred. There'll be some that are brought there. Um, and I think that uh, that environment where we're creating, uh, and I there are places here in town that I've seen that nonprofits have set up that operate like navigation centers in a way. Um, I f I'm not quite sure the name of it. It's over by East High. Um, um, but it, I, I've been there um, as a trooper and um, was surprised when I learned about it. So I think the public doesn't always see what, what's there. And some of these concepts exist based on even some models that are out there. Um, so I think what you're talking about, just brainstorming-wise, those, uh, those options are on the table and have been discussed. And, and hopefully they'll get flushed out. I don't have, because I'm not a part of those conversations specifically. Um, it may not be something I can answer now, but that I can follow up with you on. I want to get to some of the questions now that um, folks have turned in here. We have a number of them and not a lot of time left, so we're not going to get to all of them. Uh, but we had some that came in from Facebook, and um, I'd like to start there. Several questions about the relationship between homelessness in Anchorage and smaller communities throughout the state where there may not be housing or services that someone needs. Terrence spoke a little bit about this, but I see other panelists nodding here. Jasmine, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And, and then maybe Michelle, you pick that up. I, 
I think as so many of us have said, and as I suspect most of you know, um, homelessness gets complicated at the individual level. Um, we know that Anchorage has the many of the resources in our state. So if you have complex medical needs, um, if you have to have a stay at API, if your family's involved with the Office of Children's Services, um, you will be in Anchorage. We also know that many people come here to get those needs met and end up not having housing here. Um, we know that we have seasonal workers. Uh, I would say for me, no levity intended, the most shocking part of the pandemic was when I got a call and was told, we have 16,000 seasonal workers flying into the fisheries. They have nowhere to stay. What shelter shall we send them to? And there was a bit of a slow blink on my end thinking, we don't have capacity for 16,000 people. Um, we learned a new lesson, that many seasonal workers use our shelter system. And so I can tell you today, um, I received communication that there was an organization in another part of the state that had to relocate a number of people to Anchorage to use our shelter system. And so I, I do think that we have to realize that we are the beneficiaries of many resources that make Anchorage a great economic and, and community for us. But that does mean that many people in smaller communities, uh, you know, the, the Matsu Valley does not have a shelter. If you were to go to Sullivan and speak to the people there, you will find a number of them are actually from the valley. But since they cannot get their needs met, as adults, there is a youth shelter in the valley that does phenomenal work. Uh, they come here. And so again, when I say Anchorage is serving a statewide need in our shelter system, um, and in our homeless services because, you know, people have free will. So there are people that come to Anchorage, they stabilize in Anchorage, um, and then they end up finding housing if it's available for them in Anchorage and they stay here and are productive. But it is absolutely a statewide challenge that we inherit. Um, there, are, there are pros to that in terms of resources, but there's certainly the challenges because people get bottlenecked and stuck mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Michelle, did you want to add to that? Just a little bit to, to connect this also to the good point that Terrence has been making about root causes. And um, it's not only people coming for services who get stuck, but there are a lot of economic issues and lack of housing that Jasmine mentioned earlier. And those kind of factors, those social factors, drive people into Anchorage and often into homelessness as well here. And so I just want to emphasize why I agree entirely on root causes. It's not just individual things that happen, trauma or life experiences that we would like to prevent. It's also social and economic policies that we may have to look at from a state perspective if we really want to address um, the economic and the social factors that are often unintentionally leading people into homelessness. A question that we also had from Facebook is um, someone asked about what's available to help people transitioning from prison into the communities so they don't become homeless. And uh, it was of note in your presentation, Jasmine, that 65.8% of incarcerated people don't know where they're going when they get released. That seems like an enormous problem. So. Are there some ideas for what's available? I know that there's partners for reentry. There are some groups that are helping folks that are are trying to uh, come after serving a prison sentence and um, be able to successfully transition back into their community. What um, can you tell us about that? Does anybody have any information about that? Or Terrence? So I I, uh, I worked at the Department of Corrections for a while too, um, and. Uh, spent a fair amount of time talking with folks that were getting ready to be released, and um, it was during a period of time when they were changing um, pretrial sentencing 
where some people were, uh, where there were there was transition issues and people that were normally not incarcerated were being incarcerated and vice versa. So uh, big changes and shifts. Um, but if I were to arrest somebody out in a rural community and bring them into, uh, in the, in, let's say they're incarcerated in Bethel, and then for population management control, they move that person to Fairbanks, um, and then that person serves their time and they are released, the Department of Corrections is obligated to send them back out. But there's some factors that start to take place that happen. Um, the, they're not always welcome back in their community or where they were living, so that's one, especially if it was an egregious crime. But the second thing is we know that if we, serve, if we house people in incarcerated situations more than 500 miles from the domicile, uh, National Department of Justice uh, statistics state that uh, if you open your aperture, um, you'll have recidivism rates that go way up um, if you open the aperture beyond three years. So Department correction statistics that we use here, they say, oh, we're at, you know, 20, 30% recidivism. But when you go up to nine years, recidivism is roughly 88, 85 to 90%. And that means that we have that factor playing and we start, a, that's that continuum I see happening where we have people in that, that the correction system. So we, as we incarcerate people further away from home, they become more detached from home. And when you remove them from their cultural, familial, or religious locales, we start housing people out of state, we start doing those things, we actually are contributing to the problem that we're seeing here, and that's a root cause. And even though we provide them a plane ticket back home, we're creating something with this systemic thing. So one thing with corrections, they should be a part of this conversation because we may have people serving their time and getting out in Anchorage, and but they're really from someplace uh, a thousand miles from here, 700 miles away, and we've built a problem now. That's the, that's a systemic problem. So corrections should be at the table because I think part of this is not something that we can solve with what we're doing, right? We're just dealing with, with the factors that now they are in the situation where they lack housing or they're on the streets and um, there's not much control. I, I have a follow-up to that. Uh, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's my understanding that if someone may be in Anchorage for uh, any particular reason from another part of the state, if they get arrested here and are put into jail, um, they will be released here and not released back whenever their sentence is done. They'll be released back where they were arrested, not in their home community. Uh, yeah, where they, where they were arrested. Okay. Yeah. So that's probably another contributing factor for folks not able to get back home. And so that, yeah, so what it amounts to is that you have all these good efforts happening here, we're doing these things, and then that is sort of this factor that we haven't controlled. We can control it by making different decisions, um, but that's a bigger picture because it's a statewide issue and uh, it depart the department and it's a lot of money. So we definitely need to bring that to the, you know, those, uh, those players to the table so that we can involve them with the solution. We only have a few minutes left, and um, did you want to follow up there quickly? Or I was going to say, on a positive note, we have a reentry coalition here in Anchorage. We work with them quite a bit targeting this issue, and at the state level, Department of Corrections has actually invested in expanding that vision, so uh, we haven't seen it move fast enough to impact what we're talking about at an individual level, but there is an investment, there is intentionality behind addressing this, and absolutely agree with the notion we should be working together to solve this. Mm -hmm. This uh, is a question, that these two are a little bit combined, but this one is aimed at the assembly. We only have one assembly member here, but this question is, why doesn't the assembly support our mayor, our mayor in a quick, temporary, to permanent housing navigation system that helps 
support the changes? And this uh, second question is, does this panel support the Tudor Muldoon Navigation Center? If managed well, providing adequate space and giving differentiated services, why or why not are you in support of this? So Meg, let's start with you as the one assembly member on the panel, and then other panelists, please weigh in in our final few minutes here. Sure. So I can only speak for myself um, and what I've heard in the debate or during our meetings. And that's the number one rule as an assembly member. You only speak for yourself. Um, and um, for me, it's not that I can't support some of the general concepts. And the Navigation Center is actually that idea that you go to a one-stop shop, that there's medical. Those are things that are already being deployed, particularly through mass care, our COVID-19 response for shelter at like the Sullivan Arena. The things that give me pause about the mayor's plan are the cost, the feasibility, and the timeline presented. Um, we have created, you know, an operational budget around shelter for 150 individuals. It's in our budget between our operating and our alcohol tax budget. If we're talking about many, many more, the question becomes: How do we sustainably fund that when we don't have access to FEMA resources? Similarly, on the capital side we have about $11 million of the CARES Act funds that we had originally appropriated for other building purchases. If we're talking $20, $30 million, where do we find the difference? Um, so there's still a lot of unanswered questions and we have to pay for it in the money that we have. We don't have another source of money. Now, of course, we can work with the state and philanthropy, but we have to be really conscientious about what money we're spending on a temporary solution because we want to make investments across the spectrum and into permanent supportive housing. When we start talking about tens of millions of dollars, I start to ask, well, how much of that could be going to that $51 a day solution in permanent supportive housing? Um, so I think we have some agreements, some points of commonality as to what, what a good model may be in terms of one-stop shop, good services, but you know, size, scale, location, and cost are things you know that, um, as one of my colleagues says, the devil's in the details. And I think we still are not at that detail level that we can really start to assess what the right path on that is. Sharon, your thoughts about that that particular plan? Yeah, you know, I have to say I, I'm I'm really quite undecided about it. I mean, my initial thought was uh, that sounds like a bad idea. Um, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm always open to hearing new stuff. And why, why was I not thrilled with it? Um, well, on the one hand, I thought, well, it's good that they're not going to put this in Fairview because this is one thing that they always say, well, we're going to put something in the, native ho the old native hospital ground. So I was very glad to hear that that's, that's off the table. And so I, I, I appreciate that this administration is sort of going along with what I think the trend now in this community is, is to recognize that it doesn't benefit us to put all the services for this population in one small part of the city. So thanks to everyone who's sort of on board with that approach. Um, but, but then I thought, well, it doesn't really, uh, it's not good for me to say, well, I like it as a Fairview resident that it's not gonna be in Fairview because I think about the impacts of the Brother Francis shelter prior to COVID when there were a lot of people in there and there were serious impacts on the surrounding neighborhood. Um, how can these be avoided in this new facility? What, what's the plan? Will, uh, you know, and will it in fact be temporary? Often things are created on a temporary basis and people say, well, this is actually working pretty well. Before you know it, it's, it's permanent. And so that's another concern. Um, 
but you know, while this discussion was going on, the, the assembly was also passing um, you know, ordinances that allow the placement of, of shelters in B3 zone uh, areas rather than just the public lands and institutions own uh, land. So that's something that I really hope we'll start to see more of. Smaller scale facilities scattered throughout the, the city that takes advantage of you know, uh, access to jobs, access to transportation corridors and so on. All right, Michelle. I think this falls a bit into that trap of, okay, now let's turn all the conversation to one tactic. And that's a risk for this community. There was a plan to close the Sullivan for, to reopen the Sullivan for its intended purpose and to figure out how to move as many people as possible to housing and to also provide additional shelter capacity. Um, the new mayor came in, and as is his prerogative, he wants to approach things in a different way. Um, and I don't think there's any fundamentally, something fundamentally wrong with the site or the concept, certainly not the concept of a navigation center and providing services. It's really its proportionality to the rest of the system. We do not have infinite funds, obviously, and if we want to tackle everything from prevention all the way to housing, if you use the vast majority of the funding for shelter and navigation center, where do you navigate people to? What happens to them? If there's nothing left for treatment and housing and anything else because you've used it all in this one piece, you've just recreated that silo approach that has not served us well in the past. So it certainly has a place in the continuum of services, but you want to find the place that offers the most value for the most reasonable cost. Well, we want to be respectful of everyone's time, so thank you to our panelists for their time and dedication to this, these very important issues that affect all Alaskans, not just those who are currently unhoused. As all of you know, we're talking about people's lives, and many of us know or have known someone who has lost their home. These are people who are mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunties and uncles, cousins, grandparents, friends. And in closing, I want to mention that a lot of the people who our reporters interviewed reflected the same simple desires that many of us have. One gentleman said he wants a job. He wants stability. He eventually wants to find love, marriage, and a family. He said, quote, a home with a white picket fence. Others praised the help that they had received at the Sullivan and the other shelters in Anchorage. One person said, quote, we all have problems here. They don't look at us as cattle. They look at us as human beings. This is often such an emotional topic with vastly different ideas about solutions. But remembering these points in the heat of the debate is critical and helpful. And just remembering that these are our neighbors. And um, it's good that everyone's here and engaged in this discussion. And as Terrence said, it's important to continue these discussions uh, in our community and come together for solutions. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much for your time and your interest. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard a panel discussion on homelessness in Anchorage. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like it, you can head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page.
Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.